Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy by Trustar. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. In episodes 11, 12, and 14 of season two, Serious Privacy spoke to the three finalists of the fifth EDPL Young Scholar Award 2021. We are very happy that also this year we have one of the finalists of the award joining us to discuss his paper. Yannick Fogel is a PhD student at a European university or a number of European universities and is hoping to obtain a joint international doctoral degree in law, science and technology very soon. His paper, titled Stretching the Limit, the Functioning of the GDPR's Notion of Consent in the Context of Data Intermediary Services, looks ahead at one of the new European laws that is entering into force shortly as part of the EU digital single market, the Data Governance Act. And this law should make it easier to share personal data, especially between the public and the private sector. What it all entails and what consent's got to do with it, we'll discuss today with Yannick. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. I was struggling to get the unexpected question out because I had something else on my mind. So welcome, Yannick. I'm so glad that you are here with us. I'm very excited to discuss your paper. But what I had on my mind was, I have an iPhone, Paul. <laughs> I'm, I'm still using World my... World Revolution is not out of business yet. I, I am still using my Samsung because I am a diehard Samsung, so I didn't trade it in, but I'm getting used to it. I don't know. I feel like I've switched to the dark side here. So back to the topic. Yannick, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's great to, to see your faces as well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So are you ready for the unexpected question? I mean, if it's really unexpected, I might not be completely ready. We'll see. Okay. Halloween plans. What's your costume? Oh, uh, that's really unexpected. So I don't really celebrate Halloween, <laughs> though. I don't really celebrate Halloween. Okay, we're Europeans. Halloween <laughs> is an American thing. You know, as I ask that, I'm sitting here going, do Europeans really celebrate Halloween? No, not really. No. Not really. And, su- and supposedly we, we adopted this from our European ancestors as they came over. It's supposed to be what some older... It's all Hallow's Eve. Yeah, kind of thing. But, but y'all don't, I think, y'all don't I think dress if up I would Halloween? have to dress up as something really scary, I would probably dress up as a PhD thesis because that, that's <laughs> kind of scary by now. <laughs> We're going to dig into that one later. Right, right. Oh my gosh, that reminds me of a costume I just saw that was a Walgreens receipt. I don't know if y'all have Walgreens over there. But Walgreens is a drugstore, a pharmacy, has lots of other stuff in it. But when it prints out a receipt, it prints out all of these coupons and awards and everything. And you can literally walk out from one purchase with a five foot long receipt. 
So there was a Halloween costume that was a Walgreens receipt. I imagine a PhD thesis would look the same way. It just trail behind you. For, <laughs> yeah, and it's, for it's, it's a bit longer than, than five pages, but something like that. <laughs> something like that. All right, Paul, pick a costume. Well, if it needs to be scary, then probably I would choose Donald J. Trump. I'm not laughing. Sorry, is that too political? <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's actually awesome. I love it. I can't say that I always dress up as something scary, uh, but of course I do dress up. My go-to is Maleficent, but my company is having its first off-site, and it happens to be, because we're fully remote, it happens to be here in the Phoenix area in Scottsdale at the very beginning of November. So they're going to have a costume contest on November 1st, or a costume dress-up. I feel like I need to wear Maleficent because they've heard about it for, you know, almost a year now, but we haven't been in person. But on the other hand, when it's Halloween, I want to dress up as something different than what I cosplay on a regular basis. So mm. I bought the the new Harley Quinn Suicide Squad 2 red dress where she ripped, I don't know if y'all seen it, she rips the dress and so it's like half tattered and everything and she goes around killing people and when she stabs them, flowers come blooming out of them. <laughs> Again, something that I have not seen and I'm not sure whether I want to watch it. But <laughs> Paul is just not as big of a geek as I am, people. Everyone on no, the podcast who pop, realizes pop that, raise your my... hand. Yeah, pop culture is not my thing. You need Ralph for that and Marie. <laughs> oh, that's true. Those are the people I could talk to. So, Yannick, yeah, th this is real as it gets here. <laughs> I see, I see. Maybe me and Paul should just get more into Halloween. Yes, maybe, maybe. I support that. I mean, I did like it when I was part of the Trust Arc team and we did the annual Halloween skits. That was a lot of fun. Yes! But we just don't have the tradition here. So, if I mean, if you are part of a a broader team, a broader Halloween cele a celebration, then sure, I want to make an effort and I'm happy to do it. But it's not something that is really living here. Okay, of course, so... I'll be in the U.S. just after Halloween, so that will be too late to mm. properly I'm sitting it. here thinking that the closest Wednesdays we have are October the 26th, with I'll still be on the cruise, or November the 2nd. So I could make you dress up for November the 2nd on the <laughs> podcast. As He's Yannick like, yeah. just rightfully said, the podcast is audio. That is true. <laughs> so, yeah, We're going to have to start we... vlogging these. Yeah, before we start creating a whole Halloween podcast right now on the spot without us being aware. And before we dig into your paper, tell us about the PhD. Let's get that let's yes. get that out of the door, literally and figuratively speaking. Right. Yes, and I'm eager to hear about it because as we were just touching base right before we turned on the recorder, I just finished mine like less than a year ago, and I have a big feeling that it's much, much different in Europe. Well, I'm not really sure how it would differ to PhDs in the U.S., but my experience was it that was we started in November 2019 at the University of Bologna, okay. and we were all super excited, and there were a few rumors about a virus somewhere in the East that we weren't taking too serious. <laughs> yeah, and I remember that. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. like before season one, episode one of COVID, it was, it was still the, the trailer. It was kind of fun back then. And yeah, so I started at the University of Bologna with a couple of really great professors. And unfortunately, the whole thing kind of became remote. Um, then I moved to the University of Torino. Unfortunately, most of it was remote as well. And then the University of Vienna. 
and the people were great everywhere, but unfortunately they were mostly visible through a screen and, and not in person. But now, which kind of takes away from the whole PhD cohort, cohort, a lab, you know, collaborative kind of yeah, exa- environment. Exactly. Like, so it seems like it would make it much more challenging. Well, in, in, in a certain way it was, yes, but also the, the times which you could see each other were, were even better, right? So we could go to our office in, in Bologna and we would like secretly drink a glass of wine after work there and, you know, have some time together as well. And it really like made us appreciate the time that we had as PhD students even more, just huddled up together inside of the office. Nice. Now, t- tell me a little bit about how this works. So did you have to have a master's degree before you started the PhD? Yeah, I think there was a requirement. I had two. So that was, that was no problem. Yeah. Ah, beautiful. And are there classes in the PhD before you start, you go away and you start on your dissertation? Well, we, we get some classes on legal English writing and more in general, some basic stuff because we're interdisciplinary. So if you don't know a whole lot about computer science, then you, they're just running you through the basics. And of course, you have your own niche in which you're more of an expert. But just to make sure you get the basics of a lot of stuff, you would, you would, get, you would get some lectures okay. in that, yeah. So that is a little different here. Here, you're also supposed to have a master's before you start. But if not, you can spend your first two years of it getting your master's and counting towards that. But we had, I went part-time, so put that on the table first. So we had two years of classes before we took a test to qualify us to enter the dissertation phase. And then, yes, they expect the dissertation and the classes and the entire program to take 10 years or less. This is relatively new to the U.S. because it's kind of been that Ph.D. students could take forever. And now they're trying to encourage them to get the heck out of class and graduate. Right, right. That makes sense. But 11 years, wow, that's... That must have been such a long, long trial. Yeah, mine was 11 years. We're not going to talk about that wow. much. <laughs> <laughs> but no, congratulations. And I understand that you are here today representing yourself as a PH student. You're not representing any organization in the past or in the future. It is completely and totally your own opinion. Absolutely. Thank you. That's the academic freedom, right? Hmm. So... The degree is in law, science, and technology. Yeah. What is what is the focus? Oh. Is the focus law? Is the focus science, or is the fo- focus on technology? Well, that kind of depends on who you are. There's a co- well. I mean, for you. So for for, for me, it's it's law. It's uh, it's law, which I went a bit more abstract with. But one of my colleagues is a computer scientist, so for him, it's far more focused on computer science. No, but for me, I, wow. I study the notion of commodification in digital economies. So you sort of divert from everything that you know, the discussions that happen within these legal spheres, and you try to sort of abstract from that a little bit more. Um, so like, I, 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 love I wouldn't it. say that my PhD is purely about law. It's, it's rather not so much about law at all, but it tackles some of the of the issues that we deal with when it comes to data-driven economies and how to shape those economies and what to think about them. I want to come get a PhD where you did because I'm the executive director of the Center for Law, Science, and Technology. Now it's the Law, Science, and Innovation, but it was the Law, Science, and Technology. It was the exec. I'm on the executive council for the Center for Law, Science, and Innovation, but up until recently, it was the Center for Law, Science, and Technology. And so I've been working with that for a long time. So I love your PhD. Thank you. Yeah, you should come to Italy. It's great here. I can really recommend it. I think I should. I think I need to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> nice weather, good food, nice people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
good coffee as well. Sounds completely so, different from the US right now. <laughs> exactly. So commodification of the digital economy. So basically using data to pay for things. Well, that's that's of course part of it. I think I think a lot of the focus that we have, we we study data, we try to either go the way of saying that well data uh, data protection is a fundamental right and there's no economics involved there or we try to sort of go down the avenue of data as property or data as an object and, and all of that stuff. And I try to, yeah, get some sort of streamline in that debate while also really focusing on the notion of commodification, which in itself is, is, a, is a deeply interesting subject because it, it, it's interpreted by so many people in so many different ways. So we could speak about commodification for hours and have two entirely different outlooks on the matter. Interesting. And so how does this relate to the paper that you submitted for the Young Scholar Award? Well, to be honest, sometimes I can be a bit of an abstract thinker and I have my head in the clouds for a little bit. And then I saw this mm-hmm. um, this proposal for the Data Governance Act and I thought this might be a nice moment to be a lawyer again for a, for a minute. And so I sort of zoomed back in into, into the legal part and that's, uh, that's when I sort of started analyzing the proposal and realizing that, hey, are we sure this is an, an interesting or a, or a correct way to go about this? And how could we do things differently? And before I knew it, I was just fully invested in it and started tracking all of the changes that came from uh, the parliament and then in the final version. Yeah, and sort of build a critique based upon that. So I think a lot of our listeners have no real idea yet what the Data Governance Act entails. Can you tell them a bit more about what it is, how it will work, when it will work? Sure. So if I had to sort of summarize it, there's a big problem within the European data economy, and that's there's a lot of data, but it's not necessarily properly distributed. So there are entities that hold a lot of data, and there are a lot of entities that want a lot of data, and there are entities, well, data subjects that provide a lot of data. And the European Union is trying to sort of streamline all of those relationships, what they should look like, who they should benefit, all of that. Um, and so what the Data Governance Act does is it acknowledges that, right? And it says, well, we seek to aggregate and like exchange a lot of substantial amounts of, of relevant data. And it provides three schemes in order to do that. There's a data reuse scheme, a data intermediary scheme, and a data altruism scheme. And all of those are very interesting. The data reuse scheme, I, I didn't focus on at all in my paper. And the, the data altruism scheme, I believe other scholars have tackled. But my, my interest was really in the, in the data intermediaries because it's, it's sort of a new entity that sits in between the want side of data, sort of the demand side of data and the supply side of data. And so it'll have a super important role. But the way in which the, the, the data transactions, if you will, or the data flows are, are, are shaped is through the notion of consent. And I thought that that might not be the best reason to do so. And I sort of set out in the paper like what these relationships are and how they work and why consent might not be the best, best idea there. And why might consent not be the best idea? Let's, let's get to the core of your, of your paper. Right. So what I, what I found is that the notion of consent is really focused on, on the individual, right? The individual has to understand yeah what he or she is consenting to has to be a clear affirmative act that is informed, specific, 
unambiguous, freely given, all of that. And I think that already in our current sort of data ecosystem, we see a lot of consent fatigue. People don't read it anymore. People don't really care about clicking. A fun fact, I've seen my, my, my younger sister click through a data policy the other day, and I was amazed by how fast she can find the accept button, whereas I tried to find the decline button. But sorry, different story. <laughs> well, but don't you love it? The ones that build in the technology that you can't click accept until you've at least scrolled to the bottom. I mean, like these 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 banners, they're they're like a personal fascination. But let's not get into that. Like they're ah, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't mean cookie banners. I meant other consents that when you agree to them, you have to scroll all the way through them, which is hilarious because you know you can scroll through them in half a second. Right, but that's right, 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 point. Yeah. But I agree. People are not reading consents. If they are reading them, they're not understanding them. Most of these consents are at a very, very high level anyway. If you were to click in the cookies and try to understand what they actually do and what the impact on the art, there, there's no understanding no, there. No, exactly. And so what I, what I was kind of afraid of is that when you try to move more data from data subjects and data holders to data users, you can go into those terms for a bit if you want to. But if you use the, the notion of consent, then you only put more burden on the already overburdened data subject. And, and, it's, and it sort of continues in, in a way that's, that's a bit male, male, malevolent, a, a, bit, a bit unfair, I would say, to the, to the data subjects, because you ask them to take into account what other people are trying to get out of them, instead of that relationship being solely focused on the, the data subject trying to engage with a service and having to consent sort of for that reason. I like it. I like what you said about. Um it is not meaningful consent in having them read these these notices and everything and understand it is true. I remember my daughters as teenagers asked, why do we tell people these things? Why do we give them notices if we know they're not going to read them? Well, how else do you tell them unless you tell them? Kind of in a vicious circle, right? Yeah, and I, 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 I can understand that we're sort of basing these relationships on the notion of consent. And I, and I see the value of, of true consent, especially when it's informed and all of that. But in the paper, I sort of wonder, like, are there no other ways in which we could make these relationships right. fair without having sort of a, a sham consent going on all the time? And I did not see a miraculous finding. No, I just, that's, that's, the, that's the lovely freedom of an academic. You can critique everything. We don't have to provide <laughs> solutions. <laughs> It's when you're a practitioner, you have to solve it. As an academic, you can point out, right, yeah, right. This, this isn't a good solution. Right. And it's not. I very much enjoyed your paper, though, in reading it. It was, it was absolutely fascinating. I'm going to pull parts of it here, but I'm sure, Paul, you've got questions already ready on it. Well, I think I want to dive a little bit more still into, into the basic tools to make, to make sure that our listeners actually understand everything that's, that's going to happen. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about these data intermediaries and, and what role will they have? What kind of company should we should we think about when we talk about a data intermediary? So, so, but they're not defined as companies, right, Yannick? Well, this is the interesting point. So I followed this legislation all the way from the very beginning. And in the early drafts, you would see, well, a data intermediary is this and that. Like, I don't remember the exact, the exact definition right now. But suddenly in the final version, data intermediaries are gone. And there's only the act of providing a data intermediary yeah. service, which I thought was very interesting. Because why would you take these important entities out? But what they are, in all honesty, I could not completely tell you. I, I still don't have any idea. 
they seem to. That's interesting, actually. So they are responsible to process and provide an awful lot of personal data somewhere in the not too distant future. And we have no real idea who or what they are, but they will probably go to ask for our consent at some point to process all of that data. I, I suspect so, yeah. I mean, maybe we <laughs> should think about them as being data brokers, something like that. Or maybe. I was wondering. Scary. But then there's, there's, there's a quite interesting paper by a scholar named Urbano Riviglio, uh, who sort of goes through the notion of data brokers and sort of explains how we really also don't know what data brokers are. So that would only obscure things further. So yeah, I, I, I would say that we're kind of stuck with the data intermediary service uh, that we see in the DGA as sort of the only thing that we can hold on to. Does Europe have the concept of data brokers? I mean, I know it's a concept, but it seems like most of the bad actors or prevalent ones are here in the U.S. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose we have them, but like, as I was, re yeah, as do. I was referring to that okay. um, to that paper, like what they would be from sort of an academic stand standpoint is is quite uncertain. And even if you if you read books like Zuboff Surveillance Economy, there's there's only like a couple of mentions, like two or three of the term data broker. Uh, again, this comes from, uh, from the paper by Revilio. So you're kind of wondering, like, are we sure that we know everybody that's taking, taking part in this sort of data economy? And are we sure that we're already ready to lay down like, how they should function and what they should do and who should consent to what if we're not entirely sure what their, what their roles are or even their, their entities, you know? Well, I'm, I'm quite sure we don't fully understand. I think we're literally only scraping the surface, and I don't think the companies engaged in these activities are fully desiring for us to find out everything mm -hmm. that happens. So I, I don't think we're in any way, shape, or matter re ready to actually regulate this industry. But, I mean, on the other hand, we have to start somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah, this, you, you kind of just have to start and see how it lands and just go from there, I suppose. So maybe my, cr my like critique is, is, is a bit unfair because I do appreciate the effort, right? Maybe that sounds a bit... <laughs> it's not unfair at all. It is actually a, a fabulous paper addressing this. Not unfair at all. But yes, yeah, somehow or another, we, we've got to get this under control. And I don't know if that's going to be in the, new f in the near future. I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. But yeah, you just probably need to need to start somewhere and see see where it goes. I, I, I yeah, okay. I don't know. I don't know. That's uh... Well, but that's when it shakes out, right? When you actually pass a law to regulate it, that's when all the, the people come out screaming about what they can and can't do under uh, the law, right? I mean you, you are the practitioner, so you, so you probably know better. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean... when people come out and scream that they can't divide by law. <laughs> To be honest, I actually would like to avoid consent as much as I can for any data processing, because I think, especially nowadays, it is just almost impossible for, for consent to be really fully informed, to be really specific in the way that people understand what they are consenting to. Right. And that's also one of, one of your conclusions, that that is where we are stretching the notion of consent already to or beyond its borders. And I think that's perfectly true, not just for, for the new Data Governance Act, but also already under the GDP and, and the e-privacy directive still and, right. and in the future mm. under the e-privacy mm. regulation. I'm wondering more and more frequently, is it still is it still honest to rely upon consent for any data mm. processing? Yeah, and exactly like and if you if you look at the 
at, at the text of the DGA, the sort of data intermediary services kind of explicitly say, well, they, they explicitly say that they're trying to share data between an undetermined, undetermined number of data subjects and data holders. If you know anything about the notion of consent, then the word undetermined stands in such a problematic tension with that, right? Because you try to have everything it does. It specific. Does. Yeah. yeah, everything has to be specific, and it does. You know? And you point out in your in your paper quite well that it's related on the an unambiguous indication of the wishes, freely given, informed, fully informed, and specific. So you're right. Undetermined is quite opposite of what it is. But I want to go back to that notion of is consent still valid? Not talking about valid consent. Talking about is it a valid legal basis to rely on anymore? What else would you do with an individual other than consent? I mean, how, how would we solve this? Oh, now I stumped y'all with an unexpected yeah, you question. Did, you did. Hmm. Okay, we're going to all be academics and just say we don't have to solve it. We can just yeah, let's let's just, let's just critique it. We don't have to solve it, but I, th I think we can do much more with real legitimate interest assessments. And yes, that is more difficult. And yes, companies will need to make an effort when they want to rely upon legitimate interest, especially for data sharing. Right. And they need to be more transparent of it. Also doing it. At the same time, maybe we should also start accepting that data is not a commodity that should be used to only make money, that something as data trade might not be the best business opportunity. And of course, there are a lot of companies that need to rely on personal data for their operations to function, but that doesn't mean that personal data need to be their product, which they sell to make money. I'm still wrestling with this idea of doing away with consent. I'm sorry. I just, my practical brain can't absorb it. And maybe I'll just drop it. Maybe I'll just drop it. But if if you're, and I'm going with the scenario that you mentioned, Yannick, on where the individuals are providing their own personal data, which is in the paper under the defining data intermediary services through created relationships. Mm -hmm. And you go through, they uh, work in four ways. And the fourth one is that the individual data subjects provide their own personal data to the data intermediaries, which then aggregate or pool the data and provide multilateral or pool access to an undetermined number of data users, which would be multilateral relationships. But, okay, if we do away with the fully informed and giving them all the information and they click, yes, I consent, don't they still by their actions still have to consent to giving their data to the person? No, I, I, yeah. Or is it just, I mean... No, I, I understand that, but you also have to sort of see that if you have an undetermined number of, of people that are going to be using your data, first of all, they have an undetermined number of processing activities, but also those processing activities will change constantly. Yeah. So you, 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 would, you could make the case that every five minutes you would have to like renew consent because somebody in there is changing what they're doing with that data. Right. And I know now in many cases, it's required to list the categories of data recipients. So you could just broadly list data brokers mm. and suffice for what the law required rather than giving them specifics of exactly mm. who it goes mm. to. Um, so I guess there's not really a practical way. And this is what you so eloquently point out with these data intermediaries. There's really no practical way of being able to work with them in a way that is meaningful for data subjects. No, and, and, and sort of the, the, the caveat here is like you could, you could either deliver on the promise of the DGA and really make a lot of data available to industry. But that almost entirely means that you will have to compromise on what consent does and what it means to people. 
But if you fully live up. I think in the other three scenarios that you mentioned, I I I think they're much easier yeah. to address. No, absolutely. Like that's the problem is. Yeah. No, no, no. no it, it really gets problematic because of the word undetermined and the undetermined number of uh, data users. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 it really, really does, because I imagine that people are probably in their mind, probably not our listeners, who are probably a little bit more sophisticated about data, <laughs> but in most people, they're probably thinking, oh, a few companies. They're probably not thinking a few thousand yeah. companies, yeah. especially if you count the second level. That was done to me before. The first level may only be 300, but the second and third level, you start getting up into the thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Consent just doesn't seem to be made to to, fas- to facilitate these these types of relationships. That's just the 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 end of it for me. Like, yeah. it doesn't seem like a fair way to handle the interests of data subjects when compared to to the interests of of these data companies. It's just not it's just yeah. not fair to place all of the burdens on the on the data subjects there. And I think you hit on it right there when you say burdens. It's not fair to put the burdens on the data subjects to understand the very sophisticated and interrelated na- nature of these relationships. And I, I could kind of understand it. If I, if I want to use a service or if I go to a website, then I'm kind of asking like, hey, I want your service and I understand that you need my data. So let's engage in this sort of yes, consent, no consent type of, uh, type of discussion. But if companies are going to address me through these data intermediaries and are asking me like, hey, we want your data without providing you a service, without you asking for anything. Like, mm-hmm. like wh- how far am I supposed to go? Am I supposed to really understand all of the all of these different companies? Am I supposed to see the dangers there clearly? It's, it's, it's something that I don't have time for. And I don't think it's, it's, it's yeah. fair to, to, um, to push this on. And you spend your time studying exactly, it and you exactly. don't have and time I, for it. Uh, I, mean. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand the DGA fully and I studied it for a while. So, but Yeah, you- I think you hit on one of them when you talked about the DGA has left in the data, the definition of data intermediary activities. Was that the word? Hold on. I think I'm missing the term. Um, data intermediary services. Hmm when they remove the definition of data intermediaries. And so to me, I thought of the fact that, well, then that rolls in not just companies that only do data intermediary services, but it rolls in other companies that also engage in data intermediary services. And so to me, I think of, let's look at social media. You go to social media, you agree that you're going to get a service in exchange for you know, posting on their site and, you know, engaging with your friends, you probably don't further realize how much they do with that data for data intermediary services. So it's not even as simple as saying, I go to a site and I agree to engage with them proactively, knowing what they're going to give me. You don't know what they're doing behind mm. the scenes. But but then the problem is that these uh, data intermediaries are supposed to be these neutral buffers between both sides. Right. So I don't believe uh, that. I don't believe that. Where does it say they're supposed to be neutral? I don't believe that. Let me find that for a second. (laughs) Neutral. Let me let me pull up this definition here. Hold on. It's the word neutral in here. But no, you're you're right. I'm being a little facetious here because I don't think they can ever be neutral. They're there to make money. Recital thirty three. Do what? Ah, okay. Love it. But they're not really neutral because they're there to make money, right? Mm. Mm. How could they possibly be neutral? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, good point. Good point. Maybe you should also be an academic and just critique DGA some more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then people won't be relying on me to solve it because that's way beyond my scope. 
And let me tell you, she is an academic. She just doesn't always realize mm. it. But she asks the questions. And I, I am I am looking to be a full time professor. I mean, wow. I, I've never hidden that. So Yannick, you you mentioned should we really make this the data subjects problem? And one of my colleagues at Maastricht University often compares the whole discussion of data protection also with the safety of a car, uh, mm. a smart car. A smart car is also not asking your permission before it breaks if it suspects that there might be a crash. So why would you always rely upon the data subject's consent? And shouldn't we just have a data economy where it is self-evident that personal data is well protected? And headed for a car wreck. Mm. Right. No, not headed for a car wreck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you if you run into a case of bad data processing, of course, it won't it won't give you a whiplash. So not sure if the if the, if the car analogy is like completely fair in that sense. But I do agree with sort of the the metaphor there. We should take people's continuous attention to to the to their data protection right a bit out of the equation and sort of create a place where that is a given and you don't have to really find out what you're uh, what you're getting yourself into and sort of know that when you when you're going out there in cyberspace you're kind of safe anyway and if there's a real meaningful choice you know then sure you can you can put that you can put that up for people Sounds to me like you're expecting companies to really honor individuals' rights and their fundamental yeah. right to I'm, privacy and data protection. I'm young. I still have hopes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more optimistic than Paul is. He's the cynical <laughs> right, one. Right. I'm also younger than you are, but... <laughs> okay, but I'm American, mm. so I think that kind of balances it. Yeah. Yeah, probably it does. I think that's a perfect note, actually, to end this episode on. Yannick, so thank you so much for joining us and talking about your paper. Good luck with the PhD defense. Thank you so much. Yes. I'm sure also on behalf of all our listeners. For those who want to read the paper, you can find it into in issue two of 2022 of the European Data Protection Law Review. I we'll don't put the believe link that in. the paper is open access, but there might be an open access fair version available somewhere or a draft version floating around the mm -hmm. internet. Yeah, well, we'll um, I might get this open access. I still have to talk to my university, but like at some point it might, okay. it might become open. So stay tuned for that. And it is a fascinating paper. Absolutely, it is. On that note, we wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, like the podcast in your favorite app or on the favorite podcast platform, and do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Join the conversation on LinkedIn. You'll find us under Serious Privacy. You'll find us on Twitter at, at, podcast, at, at podcast Privacy. You'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as EuropaB. Until next week, goodbye. Thank you. Bye, y'all. Thank you, Yannick. Thank you so much. That was Serious Privacy. Hey, listeners. Looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. 
protect your company and data with TrustArk's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArk's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArk's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArk.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.